0: Well, let's open our Bibles at this time to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word beginning in verse 1. thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide, faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. As we continue our exposition of 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter that Paul uses to describe Christian love and the necessity of Christian love, we come to perhaps one of the most significant clauses in the entire chapter. In verse 5, which tells us that love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own its own. And if you look at all the different things that Paul says about love, you can see the relevance in that context in the early church, specifically in Corinth. Some of the problems that they were dealing with, we've, we've traced some of those issues as we've looked at these various statements and descriptions of Christian love. But I think it's fair to say that none of the statements in this chapter relates more directly and relevantly to the situation in Corinth than this. That Paul is confronting them saying, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. Love is not selfish, self-centered, uh, self-absorbed, self-interested. We can you know, paraphrase this in, in a thousand different ways. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. Now, at times, the biblical doctrine of sin can seem counterintuitive. And it's interesting, in God's providence, some of you know that I I had to bump this sermon back. And in God's providence, uh, it comes in the evening service, following a sermon in the morning, on the fact that not one of us does good. And specifically focusing on the biblical doctrine of human sin and of human depravity. And I wasn't thinking about that text or that sermon when I, when I wrote this initial point, but I think it's all the more helpful and relevant for us tonight. Because perhaps as we were grappling with the doctrine of human sin as we discussed it this morning, perhaps at times it seemed counterintuitive. No one is righteous. No one does good in any sense. And of course, we tried to qualify that in a biblical way. But even so... The biblical doctrine of human sin at times seems, you know, is it really the case that nobody in their natural uh, fallen condition can do anything that is truly and spiritually good? And yet, the fact of the matter is that uh, Romans 3 is perhaps best explained by a pivot to 1 Corinthians 13, because here you have a number of good works that Paul uses to introduce this chapter. He speaks of those who speak with the tongue of men and of angels. In other words, I think alluding to preaching and teaching ministry in the church. Eloquent biblical exposition and application. He speaks of those who have the gift of prophecy. Those who have great knowledge and understanding of all mysteries. Uh, who, who have all faith such that they could Remove mountains. Perhaps miraculous gifts and miraculous faith. Those who bestow all their goods to feed the poor, and even would dare to offer up their body to be burned as a martyr and a witness for the truth of the Gospel. So he mentions these various things that we would consider at least outwardly to tick all the boxes. These are good works. These are some of the best works that you could possibly do even outwardly self-sacrificial works of giving up your life for the truth, of giving all of your wealth and goods to feed the poor. Outwardly, these good and unselfish and generous and valiant things, and yet he says, if it doesn't flow from a heart of true Christian love, then it's nothing. It's unprofitable. It profits us nothing. And ultimately, we go to hell having done great works outwardly, beneficial for other people. The poor are certainly thankful. And yet, in the sight of God, an utter abomination and an affront to His holiness, which demands as the first and greatest commandment that we love Him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. I think our text in highlighting the fact that true Christian love which is indispensable, which has to be there for anything in our Christian life to have any eternal significance, uh, in in highlighting this, it points us to the fact that love is not self-seeking. And in that sense, our text helps us to resolve this tension, this sort of counterintuitive sense of that doctrine of sin, by highlighting the decisive difference between Christian love and worldly love. The difference between Christian love and worldly love is that Christian love is not self-seeking. That's the fundamental difference. Jesus expounds this from the law of God in Matthew 5, 43 and following. How you shouldn't just love your friends and hate your enemies and love people who do and say good things about you and towards you but you ought to love and bless and pray for your enemies. In the Gospels, he talks about showing hospitality, inviting people that aren't able to pay you back, where there's no self-interest involved. You're just doing it as it were out of the goodness of your heart in honor to God. Matthew 6, verse 1, as we saw this morning, reminds us that the, the false love of the Pharisees who loved their family members, loved their friends, loved those who loved them, And who did all their works to be seen by men out of a love for self. And it was an abomination in the sight of God. Paul warns in 2 Timothy chapter 3 of periods of time in New Testament history. Seasons in the last days in which there are perilous perilous times, perilous seasons. 2 Timothy 3. And in this section of Scripture, he does say that during these times, there's a form of godliness. There's an external appearance of godliness, perhaps of good works, of self-sacrifice, and these kinds of things. But denying its power, denying the true dynamic power of true godliness and true Christian love. And notice how it's characterized Second Timothy 3, verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves. And everything else is under that umbrella. Everything else is a footnote to that. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, because they set up themselves as God and they dishonor and despise the true God. Disobedient to parents. I don't want to do that, mom and dad. I don't want to do that. I don't want to refrain from doing this. I don't want to do what you're telling me to do I don't want to stop doing what you're telling me to stop doing. Why? Because I'm a lover of myself. I'm seeking myself. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Ungrateful. Why? Because we're too busy worrying about ourselves to give thanks to other people. We're so entitled that we're just unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Slanderers. Without self-control. Brutal. Despisers of good. Traitors. Headstrong haughty lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god and so you see that whole list of sins is bookended by lovers of themselves and lovers of their own pleasure rather than lovers of god and in between you have all kinds of offenses and hateful attitudes and actions against god and man though there's a form of godliness though there's, though there's an appearance of good works this that and the other yet there's no power there's no true christian love why because there's this self-seeking and christian love as opposed to worldly love as opposed to apparent love as opposed to the sort of love that that the world promotes which is based upon self-interest christian love is totally different and if you look at the world They're making every effort in our day to try to ground morality and ethics in something other than God, something other than divine revelation, something other than religion. They're trying to ground ethics and morality because they want everybody to behave, and they want everybody to do what they're supposed to do and be responsible, and yet they refuse to appeal to the authority of God or of some religious uh, uh, source of truth. And so it's interesting the the efforts to come up with evolutionary ethics. But you know at the end of the day it all boils down to self-interest. In fact the reason they say for the most part the reason they say that we sacrifice of ourselves that that we have this desire at times for altruism and self-sacrifice and you know even standing in front of a car and pushing somebody out of the way and sacrificing ourselves for others. The reason we have that natural instinct or impulse is that it stems from an impulse or an instinct for survival. So because we have this self-interest a desire for the survival of our species, a desire for our own survival. We understand that if we universalize self-sacrifice and love, then it's good for us, and there's peace and order, and people are compassionate. And so if we're self-sacrificial, then you know, pay it forward, and then other people are going to be gracious and self-sacrificial toward us, and so it just creates an environment that's so enjoyable and beneficial for the species. And so ultimately, the best they can do is ground self-sacrifice in self-interest. We sacrifice so that we can enjoy the benefits of an environment of self-sacrifice, which of course is, is just a complete self-contradiction. Jesus says something quite different he says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me the the positive motive of the christian in being self-sacrificial and denying self is the glory of god is the imitation of christ it's not sacrificing of myself to create a better environment now that is true that obeying god makes things better generally That's why we have the book of Proverbs. So, no doubt, there is something in it for us. The more we obey God, we can expect His blessing in our relationships, in our environment. But ultimately, God calls us to sacrifice of ourselves regardless how it impacts our own situation. And Jesus is is so clear that if we're doing what we're doing to save our own life, to save our own skin, for our own self-interest... He says, we're going to lose it, and it's all in vain. And and this is really the basis for Christian love in the family. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So Ephesians 5.25 and following tells us that as husbands love their wives, they ought to do it imitating Christ, and they ought to be giving up of themselves. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Husbands have come into the picture of the marriage relationship not to be served and waited on, hand and foot, and to make jokes about how women should be doing the dishes, but rather to serve and love. Now, service as a husband, service as a wife, it's going to look different, and there are different roles and responsibilities ordinarily. but. Christian love as a husband is self-sacrifice in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ because His self-sacrifice saved us and glorifies God and we desire to follow in His steps. The same is true in our relationship with each other. 1 John 3.16 says that in our relationships with the brothers and sisters that we have in Christ, by this we know love because He laid down His life for us And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. At no point does it say do this because it's in your self-interest, in your best interest. But it's saying do this to glorify God in the imitation of Jesus Christ. He saved you. He loved you. You love Him. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery or love. And so you walk in His steps. And if He died for the sins of your brothers and sisters even of your family members and your Christian family, if He died for their sins, then you ought to sacrifice of yourself for them. That's the fundamental difference between Christian love and worldly love. Self-sacrifice versus self-seeking. Now, self-seeking occurs when we unduly exalt legitimate self-love and legitimate self-interest at the expense of God's glory and or our neighbor's good. Self-seeking occurs when we unduly exalt legitimate self-love and legitimate self-interest at the expense of God's glory and or our neighbor's good. And so, when we think of self-love and self-interest, these things are not inherently wrong. God made us to enjoy the life that we have. As Psalm says, and then Peter quotes it, He who loves life and would see good days, and he gives instructions of how to fear God and live a godly life, and and to enjoy that life, and to love the life that God has given you, and how are you going to love your neighbor as yourself if you have no love for yourself? Now, we have to be careful with this, of course. But we don't want to overreact to the the sort of namby-pamby gospel of self-esteem that's out there. But there is such a thing as legitimate self-love. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus says in the golden rule that we're to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Well, how do we know how we want to be treated? Because we have some regard to what we desire, how we want to be treated. And so, in many ways, what Jesus is saying is, in order to avoid having an excess of self-love, if you have too much of something, what do you do? You recycle it. Well, if you, have, if you have so much concern about self-love, well, why don't you take that extra self-love, think about it, and start applying it to how you treat other people. Treat them the way you want to be treated. But it presupposes that there is an element of self-love and self-interest that in its proper limited degree and proportion is legitimate. Think of Ephesians 5, 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, loves himself. Paul, you're falling into the, the self-esteem movement. No. He, he's, he, this is inspired Scripture. Let's be careful here. He says, he who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Now it's true we hate our sinful flesh, We hate what sin does to us and we despise ourselves and repent in dust and ashes like Job. We abhor ourselves in that sense, reflecting on the corruption of sin and of our own selfishness. But fundamentally, God has made us and it's not wrong to love and cherish ourselves in a limited, appropriate manner. And again, that flows out into our love for our wife. Because why? Because she's one flesh with us. So we love her because she's part of us. And we ought to love ourselves. No one ever hated his own flesh. If we do that, that leads in the direction of suicide and breaking the sixth commandment. He nourishes and cherishes his own flesh, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So, the key here is that our self-love and self-interest remains in its proper proportion. And I think that's addressed in Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So you can esteem yourself and your needs and your concerns, but you need to esteem others better than yourself and God even better than others. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Notice, he says, let each of you look out not only for his own interest." So he assumes you're looking out for your own interests. You're bearing your own load. You're responsible for yourself and the needs that you have. You have a duty to be a steward of the life God gave you and to look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And self-seeking occurs when we unduly exalt that legitimate self-love and legitimate self-interest at the expense of God's glory and or our neighbor's good. And so God calls us to do something for His glory or for our neighbor's good, and, well, we just don't want to do it. Uh, God calls Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites, and he just doesn't want to do it. I mean, there's so many examples in the Scriptures, which, for whatever reason, I don't want to do that. That's not going to work well for what I'm looking to do and the way I'm wanting things to work out for myself. So we just love ourselves at the expense of God and our neighbor. And that's a problem. That's self-seeking. And self-seeking, far from being a minor offense, has contributed in large part to arguably the three greatest sins in all of history self-seeking is at the fundamental core of Satan's fall desiring to exalt himself seeking his own selfish ambition to be like the most high Isaiah 14 and James actually says something about this as well in James chapter 3 James chapter 3 verse 14 but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom—yeah, wisdom in scare quotes, right? It's not actually wisdom, but you know, this sort of envious, self-seeking, worldly wisdom. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, <coughs> demonic. By the way, that's where the the verse where we um, we draw out the idea that our three spiritual foes are the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's earthly or worldly. It's sensual or fleshly. It's demonic or satanic or devilish. But notice that that kind of bitter envy and self-seeking is demonic. And no doubt contributed to Satan's fall and the demonic fall at the beginning of history. Also man's fall, obviously. Satan then tempted Eve with that same temptation To be like God. You shall be like God. And so, they're desiring and seeking for themselves that selfish ambition. It's also true that the crucifixion of Christ was rooted and grounded in self-seeking and self-interest. Remember John chapter 11, where the religious leaders gather together and they say, if we allow Jesus to continue what He's doing... They're going to come and take away. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. And when Pilate adjudicated the case, or as he was you know, listening to Jesus and interacting with the religious leaders, the Gospels tell us in multiple instances that he knew, he discerned that it was for envy that they delivered him up. Now, Pilate wasn't much better. The moment he was threatened with an appeal to Caesar that he was letting somebody off the hook that was speaking against Roman taxation, and the the Jews cried out, we have no king but Caesar, Pilate, out of a desire of self-preservation and self-seeking, sent Jesus to the cross. So, from all these different angles, all of these three greatest sins in history were rooted in self-seeking. Satan's fall, man's fall, and the crucifixion of the Son of God. So self-seeking is a big deal. And self-seeking is an abomination in God's sight which pollutes everything that it touches. Again, it helps us to, to make sense even more of this morning's message that self-seeking, when it attaches itself even to the greatest of good works, even to the things Paul mentions here, Dying the death of a martyr, giving all of our earthly goods to feed the poor. When self-seeking, even an ounce of it, even a drop of it, comes into play with, with our good works, it pollutes everything. Think of a husband who is kind and patient with his wife, so that his girlfriend on the side doesn't find out that he was mean to his wife and dump him. Think about that. A man who's kind and gracious to his wife because he doesn't want his girlfriend to find out because she'll dump him. Uh, that, that, how, how do you think the wife would feel if she found out that the husband was being kind to her so that you know, he wouldn't offend? Let's say his girlfriend's a waitress at the restaurant. He's really nice to his wife because he wants to look good, ah, but his girlfriend's serving the meal, watching him like a hawk. Here's the point. God hates it if we're not doing what we're doing for Him, if we're doing it for some other agenda, if we're doing it for some other reason, to look good to someone else who has now become a competitor to God in our lives, someone or something that has come into His place sitting on His rightful throne, receiving the love that we ought to be giving Him, and we're serving that other master instead of Him, it doesn't matter who or what it is, God's name is jealous and He hates it. And His wrath and anger burns against whatever it may be. Giving yourself up as a martyr. Giving all your goods to feed the poor. Speaking and preaching and knowing all the depths of biblical doctrine. doesn't matter. It's a clanging symbol. God hates it. God hates it. When it's motivated by selfishness. And by these ulterior selfish motives. And self-seeking, in case you didn't know, I think it's obvious. I think it's obvious for every believer here today that it is a problem for us in the church. It's a problem for truly born-again regenerate believers. Self-seeking is not simply something that characterizes Satan and his kingdom. Something that only characterizes his children, his offspring. Self-seeking, Paul brings it up to the Corinthians because... There are believers in Corinth that are self-seeking. And there are things in our lives we need to identify where we are self-seeking. It's a problem for believers in the church as well. Proverbs 14, verse 14, the backslider in heart is filled with his own ways. Filled with his own ways. Rather than being satisfied from above when we backslide. And that could be talking about someone who's unconverted, maybe someone who falls away from the faith and never was saved. But I think it also applies to us when we backslide. When we're not walking closely with the Lord, it's because we're filled with our own ways and self-seeking is so easily able to deceive us. Self-seeking, self-deception, these two sins walk hand in hand. And we can easily fall prey to being filled with our own ways, clouded by our own interests. We don't even think about it. Jeremiah 45, verse 2. Baruch, who was a godly man, an associate and helper of the prophet Jeremiah. I think Baruch came from a a wealthy family and was a a man of some distinction in the nation of Israel. But uh, when, when things kind of went south in in the kingdom of Judah, and it was time for the captivity, Baruch struggled with this. And we're told here, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, you said, woe is me now. See that two-letter word that comes in? Me. Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing, and I find no Rest. So you see me, my, I, me, myself, and I. And of course, again, I'm making this point not to demonize Baruch, but to show how easy it is because there, this was an impending judgment of God upon the nation. It was going to be extremely unpleasant and deadly for many. Utterly devastating. So we can understand why he would say woe is me in a sense. But um, notice how the Lord confronts this undue focus on his own interests and the implications and consequences for himself he says thus you shall say to him thus says the lord behold what i have built i will break down and what i have planted i will pluck up that is this whole land god's saying this is my nation this is my kingdom this is my covenant people this is the throne of David that I established. Of course, God is ever blessed in Himself, but God is making the point here. If anyone should be, should be upset at losing something, it's me. This is my nation. I'm the one who invested in it. God says, it's, it's my bride, it's my church, it's my nation, it's my people that are going to be demolished and trampled underfoot. Who has a greater interest in what's about to happen than I do, says the Lord? But Baruch isn't lamenting because of the glory of God being cast into the dust. He's focused on his own interests and the implications that it has upon himself. And then the Lord says, "...and do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh," says the Lord, But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. So God says, I'll be faithful to you. I'll watch out for you. I'll meet your needs and and make sure that you're able to endure to the end here. But, don't lament, don't grieve over the the fact that you're not going to reach the heights of your earthly ambition. Don't seek great things for yourself. Don't seek them, the Lord says. But it presupposes that he was seeking them. And he's a godly believer. So you you, you see how easy it is for us to seek our own things. And we can seek our own fill-in-the-blank. We can seek our own comfort. We can be concerned about avoiding awkwardness. God calls us to do something, but it's uncomfortable. And so we avoid that particular responsibility. We can seek our own pleasure. We can seek our own honor. We can seek our own wealth and make decisions based upon money as the primary object rather than seeking first God's kingdom. We're seeking our own wealth. We're seeking our own advantage and benefit uh, even when we deal with others when we deal with others in the church or even in society we're taking advantage of people we're not being honest we're not being straightforward and we're, we're just looking out for number one you think christians don't struggle with that that's a temptation for every one of us uh, we can be obsessed with our own ideas our own opinions our own words and our own ways uh, I have to constantly be reminding myself as someone who talks a lot, you know, am I thinking about what somebody else wants to say and what they have to say? I constantly have to repent of that and have to think about am I Am I so focused on my own ideas and opinions and words that I'm not trying to evoke that and draw that out of other people, what they think and how they feel and, and ask questions of them? But it it can easily, for some of us, revolve around us. And this is a problem in Corinth. They were seeking their own. You can see it throughout this epistle. They were self-absorbed. In chapter 1 and chapter 3, you can refer to these chapters on your own time, but they're saying, I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. I'm part of this camp. I have this... Figurehead, favorite preacher that I associate with over against the other one and trying to just exalt in themselves in their own views and ideas and associations within the body of Christ. But we see it even more in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So we're obsessed with our own thoughts and ideas and knowledge. We, we think we've attained, we think we've achieved something, and obviously we don't want to end up with a sort of uh, always learning, never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Granted. But I think it's, it's true. I don't know, was it Socrates or Plato or somebody said, you know, the more I learn, the more I know what I don't know. That's what Paul is getting at here. Uh, not that we're refusing to come to a knowledge of the truth and you know, we're like Bono, still haven't found what we're looking for after all these years. But w- what he's saying is, if, if we think that we've got what it takes, uh, you know, we don't know much because the more you learn, the more you realize there are so much more to learn. And he says, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Uh, we, we focus on God's knowledge and his love for us. So, the Corinthians were were unduly fascinated with their own knowledge, and especially their own knowledge of God, and of the idea that idols are not real. In chapter 8, he's dealing with this controversy where some of the Corinthians are unable in good conscience to eat meat that came from the market and had previously been used for idolatrous ceremonies. And other Christians are saying, look, you know, it's not like you're showing up and participating in this idolatrous festival. You're just eating the meat that was sold in the market that may or may not trace back to that festival. And then you know, they packaged it and put it at the supermarket, so to speak. And idols really aren't anything, so you can eat this and not feel defiled. And they would give these theological reasons for this and showcase their knowledge and be puffed up and arrogant toward these over-scrupulous Christians who were just too concerned about it and needed to mature on that issue, but they just weren't there yet. And these weaker brethren were being despised by those who had greater knowledge and greater liberty. But he says, verse 9, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So, there was a danger here. In fact, he goes on, Verse 11, because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So something in their carriage, something in their words and their conduct. Unnecessary things that they didn't have to be saying and doing. Whatever it was, it was wounding people and harming them spiritually. And all these people had to do was just humble themselves, keep it to themselves, and filter out anything that wasn't going to be for the edification of these weaker brethren. Paul's not telling them to compromise biblical doctrine. He's not telling them to stop in a mature way, you know, teaching and instructing their brethren as opportunity avails. But he's saying there's certain things that you're saying and doing that are just not necessary, and it's hurting people. And so you just need to deny yourself and stop it. And they're not stopping it. And he's, he's, you know, like a good biblical counselor, he's saying, no, but you need to stop it. I mean, it's, not just, it's just not much more than that. But they're, they're fi- filled with their own ideas, their own practices. They won't make these sacrifices, these adjustments for the good of others. Chapter 9, verse 12. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Here he's giving an example. He's saying, look, as apostles, we have a right to claim a salary. But he says, I haven't done that. I haven't claimed a salary. I've, I've worked a side job to pay for my expenses. And I've done that to show, to give an example of humility and self-sacrifice for the good of others and for various other reasons that he talks about elsewhere. But he says, I've given up that right. I've, I've laid it down for the good of the brethren. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. So you see, he's saying, whatever it is, if there's something I can sacrifice, something I can do in good conscience that will genuinely help the weaker brother, genuinely help someone... And, and I'm conscious of that, then I'm going to make that sacrifice. Maybe they come to me and say, hey, could, you're doing something that's bothering me. This happens hopefully sometimes in the family, where instead of just blowing up and getting upset with each other, you, know, you come to the person, or they come to you rather, and they say, you're doing this, it's bothering me. Or maybe they do blow up at you, and, and you find out in that way. But there's something you're doing, that is is just uh, factoring into a conflict. And there's a way that you can tweak your behavior, your conduct, you can humble yourself, deny yourself, and just make some adjustments for the good of that relationship, for the good of that person. I'm not talking about the tyranny of the weaker brother where people are trying to manipulate you, but I'm saying you sit down after the conflict and you think, and you're praying about it, and it comes to mind, yeah, I could stop saying or doing that. I could probably make that adjustment, and this would help my marriage, this would help my relationship with my children, I'd be less likely to provoke them to wrath, this would help my uh, relationship with this or that person in the body of Christ. There's something I could deny for that purpose, but the Corinthians at this point are not willing to do that. They're either oblivious or unwilling to make reasonable sacrifices for the good of others. And and he's saying, don't say that you love the brethren. Don't say that you love your wife or your husband or your children or anybody if you're not willing to make those adjustments. If you're not willing to make those changes and, and, and do what God's Word says and even be all things to all men insofar as you're able to win them and to help heal the breach or whatever it is. Don't say you love the person if you're not willing to make that sacrifice if you're too self-absorbed like the Corinthians. Uh, You see it in chapter 10, verse 23. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. He's dealing here again with the meat sacrifice to idols. But you can apply it to a whole bunch of things. Again, I'm not saying let somebody else trample around the church with their conscientious issues and, and tell everybody what to do like a drill sergeant. We're not talking about that kind of nonsense. But we are saying that within the bounds of Christian liberty where there are lawful options for your words and the way in which you communicate and the behavior that you have and all these kinds of choices that you have before you within the confines of what is lawful of all these lawful options that you have try to choose the options that are most helpful for the edification of other people and don't just seek your own and say I'm just going to do whatever I want to do now, you may be in a conflict where somebody confronts you and you get upset and, you know, what, what, do, what do we do? What have I done? What have, you know, we, we knee-jerk. We, we respond back. We get offended. It's sin. It's no excuse. We shouldn't do it, but it does happen. But then we go back and we're sitting alone thinking about it. And at that point, this is where I'm saying this type of principle comes in to where you need to talk to yourself, preach to yourself, exhort yourself wait a second, there is something I can do to make a change to help this marriage, to help this relationship with my son or daughter, to help this relationship in the church or, or even in the workplace at times. But even though in the heat of the moment I react against it, I can go back and think about it and God can enable me to make those adjustments and not to seek my own, but the other person's well-being. Corinth is just a classic example where this needs to take place. Uh, You you see some other examples. Um, We we can't go on forever here, but chapter 6, just the idea of self-interest and personal advantage. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 6. This church was having problems. We can be thankful just reading this. Again, we don't want to puff ourselves up like, oh, we're so much better than Corinth. But it is encouraging. I mean, things could be worse, right? We don't have anybody suing other church members as far as I know, but that's what's happening in Corinth. It says, But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So you got brothers and sisters cheating each other, defrauding each other, and they're going to the civil magistrates. And it's just the the whole thing is bitter, feuding, quarrelling, and it's a nightmare. It hurts the witness of the church, and so much more could be said. But it, it's a, it, it's harming the witness of the church to unbelievers who need to hear the gospel because they just. These believers just won't get their act together and find a way to come to terms. And it's not as though just one side is defrauding and the other side's just supposed to, again, just be trampled underfoot. That's not actually what's happening. It says in this case, so when we apply this, recognize in this case, both sides are defrauding and cheating each other. The same person he says that you should just allow yourself to be defrauded and move on is the person that he says, but instead you're cheating the other person. So they're both cheating each other, uh, lest we uh, apply this in an inappropriate way. That's the situation. But think about the selfish conflicts in your own life. Whether it's in the church, but think about in the family. The fact is that I can say as a married man, that when my wife and I don't get along, or when we have this kind of selfish back and forth Do you think that's good for the children do you think that helps the children do you think that's an encouragement to them in their in their Christian lives for those that have come to profess their faith do you think it's helpful in terms of evangelizing and discipling our children is that going to draw them in is that going to validate and confirm the legitimacy and the credibility of what we're saying as Christian parents no it's not it's not helpful it's a huge problem. And it provokes them to wrath and stirs up strife. And my friends, we need to be careful in our marriages to recognize that when there is conflict and when there is this dispute and quarrel that seems to never end and it just goes on and on and on and perhaps both sides are sinning, perhaps it's more lopsided in certain instances on one side or the other, but nobody's willing to just even just take it Figuratively speaking, take it on the chin and just just let it go and and move on as best as they can for the peace and good of the family. When that doesn't happen, it harms the children. It harms the children big time. And it's selfish. If I'm not willing to do whatever I can do without sinning, anything that's lawful and in good conscience, if I'm not willing to go to the, to the, the second mile, to the nth degree to try to promote peace and harmony and sacrifice of myself to that end, then why are my children being harmed? Because of my selfishness. That's why. This is powerful. This is so relevant for every single one of us. We could go on about the people in Corinth. I mean, they're indulging themselves sexually. They're coming to the Lord's Supper and eating it like it's a big feast where some people are just... Chugging down the wine and eating luxurious food while other people have hardly anything to eat. I mean, it's just self is written all over this epistle, all over this church. Self-serving, self-indulgent, and my friends, that is totally contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ when we do that. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Paul quotes a statement of Jesus, that's not found in the Gospels, but in Acts 20:35, he quotes a verse, or he quotes a statement of Jesus, "It is better to give than to receive. It is better to give than to receive. And Paul says, on that basis, he worked hard with his hands so that he could take in some income to provide for himself and for the necessities of those who were with him. Paul was a giver, not a taker. Solomon warns us of this. My friends, if we're Christians, if we're coming to the Lord's table, our our standards speak of the Lord's Supper as a giving and receiving of bread and wine. And and my friends, the the Christian life ought to be giving and receiving, not just taking. Are we takers? Are, Are we just taking? We're on the receiving end. We're not bearing our own load. Solomon warns Proverbs 30 verse 15 that the leech has two daughters, give and give. In other words, they're takers and they want everybody to subsidize their lethargy and irresponsible behavior. Entitlement, give, give. That's the spirit of our age. Giving, no, receiving, taking. And Paul says we ought ought to be the exact opposite of that. We ought to deny ourselves and serve others. Now, let me ask you, what sacrifices can you make for the good of those around you? If you're a Christian, then you claim to love... If you're a Christian husband, you claim to love your wife. If you're a Christian wife, you claim to love your husband. Titus 2, teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children. If you're a Christian father or mother, you claim to love your children. If you're a Christian, you claim to love the brethren. Even love your neighbor as yourself and love your enemy, Jesus says. So, I mean, there's really no way around this. It's this comprehensive love. We're even supposed to love the people that we hate. The people that we look at their lifestyle and we repudiate it. And it's repulsive to us. Um, in, in the same way that we hate certain foods, we're just, oh, I don't, it's unattractive. Yet we're called to have a spirit of goodwill and kindness toward even those people, to love, as it were, to love the people that that we hate in a righteous biblical way. What sacrifices can you make to confirm that your profession as a Christian is genuine, that you really do love your spouse, that you really do love your children, that you really do love your brethren, that you really do love your neighbor or even your enemy? What sacrifices is God calling you to make for the good of those people that you claim to love. Because love does not seek its own. Love is self-sacrificial for the good of those people. Now, there may be many things you can do. We've already kind of alluded to, to some of them. But let me just say this. Keep this in the back of your mind because I would be shocked if God didn't bring things into your life in the coming weeks because there are always opportunities. There are always scenarios where we can make a sacrifice. We can make a change. We can stop saying or doing certain things for the good of others, for the health of our relationships, for the witness of the church, and and all of these things. There will be opportunities. Look for those opportunities. And even when you've had a knee-jerk reaction against those opportunities, when you're sitting down and processing it, Bring this text to mind, love does not seek its own, and beat yourself up with it into submission to love that other person. I'm not going to beat you into submission. You know, beat yourself into submission. Preach to yourself. Teach, correct, rebuke yourself. And set an example that would then do the same for others. My friends, Christ is our only hope for overcoming self-seeking. He's our only hope of having a perfect example but also He's our only hope for actually experiencing the transformation that enables us to go from self-seekers to God-seekers, to those who truly love God and love others. The cross of Christ, we're told, crucified our selfish, sinful flesh. He took our sin upon Himself and He canceled the guilt and He destroyed the dominion of that sinful, self-seeking In our lives. That's the whole point of Philippians chapter 2. That we have the mind of Christ. That we put into practice what Christ has definitively accomplished for us at the cross. And is gradually, progressively accomplishing in us through sanctification. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery or something to grab hold of and not let go, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. In other words, as our standards say, emptied himself of his own glory, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What is the picture of our self-sacrificial love? It is someone who is despised, rejected, treated unfairly, falsely accused, falsely condemned and convicted, treated harshly, spit upon, beaten with rods and fists, nailed to the cross, crown of thorns, mocking, scourging, all these things. And yet, that is the picture of the love we should have for our wife. That is the picture of the love that we ought to have for our brethren. That's the picture we ought to have of Christian love. Think about that when you feel like, well, but I've been so mistreated and it's just not fair. And Envision in your mind, without making a mental idol of the humanity of Christ, but visualize the cross visualize the cross and recognize how he was despised and yet he loved father forgive them for they know not what they do if jesus can forgive the people that did that to him what excuse do you and i have for not being forgiving what excuse do we have for bitterness and self-seeking and obsession with vindicating ourselves and winning the the long-standing ongoing quarrels and and fights and things that go on what basis do we have if Jesus the Son of God forgave the people that nailed him to the cross my friends we have Christ we have the mind of Christ we have the spirit of Christ we have the faithfulness of Christ who is our good shepherd who says that in psalm 23 1 the lord is my shepherd david says i will lack for nothing you don't need to seek your own self-interest i don't need to i don't need to look out for number one we've already got jesus looking out for us and this liberates us when we understand his faithfulness psalm 37 3 even in a wicked, oppressive world, it says, trust in the Lord and feed on His faithfulness. Once you realize that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are looking out for you every day, that your Good Shepherd will be with you with His rod and His staff to comfort you, He'll be with you, He'll protect you, He'll provide for you. Jesus in His ministry said, once you understand the reality of, of your heavenly Father. Matthew 6, verse 25. He says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. He says, don't seek self. Don't don't worry about all of these circumstances in your life and, and then prioritize yourself over against God's glory and the good of your neighbor. Don't panic. Don't be desperate. In this concern that if I don't look out for number one, then everything's going to fall apart. He says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He goes on to say, Whether it's food or clothing, your heavenly Father feeds the birds of the air, He clothes the lilies of the fields. Uh, and how much more will He not clothe you, O you of little faith? Our Heavenly Father knows that we need these things. And we need to seek first, not ourselves, but we can be free and liberated and have a lack of anxiety. We can have joy and we can seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness knowing that God is looking out for, for you. God has an eye on your circumstances. God will bring it to pass And make good on His promises. Don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your love is so powerful that it expels our inordinate self-love. That as we feed on Your faithfulness and are filled with that knowledge of your faithfulness that we're no longer filled with our own ways as backsliders in heart that we no longer desperately cling to our own interests and to our our own advantages but that we find it easier and easier to walk in the footsteps of the Savior to follow him whom we love whom we admire the one we desire to be like In as many ways as we can. Lord, conform us to Christ. Give us a self sacrificial heart of love and help us as you test us in this material. And as you bring situations into our lives and relationships where we have to humble ourselves and make adjustments, we pray that you would give us grace to do that, even to have the mind of Christ.